Well, 2017 is quickly coming to a close. And as the year that was fades into the year that will be, I can't help but think that this year really presented us with some moments of pride and jubilation, but also segments of sadness and frustration. Between those frames of time, though, we got to experience another year of keeping up to date with what's happening on the tracks, roads, and trails, and for that I'm very thankful. This week, we'll take some time to reflect. Some friends of the show, Adam, Mr. Traggy Stacy, and Run Pundit Jeff Costin pick some of their favorite interviews to relive, as well I dig up some of my favorites. A fallen legend, workouts worthy of Letzer and Fodder, a race walker, and a tale of a true underdog. This is the best of the Terminal Mile 2017 edition at the Terminal Mile on Instagram and Twitter, a Tracky Radio production. If I had to pick one moment that truly united the running community, from rec runner to pro, it was the passing of Ed Whitlock on March 13th of this year. The multi-time Masters world record holder inspired tributes from around the globe, demonstrating just how much the only man to ever go sub-3 over the age of 70 meant to everyone who ever dared to lace up a pair of runners. To pay tribute, we talked with his good friend and Scotia-Toronto Waterfront Marathon race director, Alan Brooks, back in March of this year. So I, I guess a logical place to start, Alan, would be at the beginning. Where did you first meet Ed Whitlock? I think my, my first recollections um, uh, were of Ed owning the 60 to 69 age category in our Canada running series right through the 1990s. Uh, the series started in 1990 as the Coors Light running series uh, and then it was the GMC uh, running series before eventually in 99 it became Canada running series. And uh, uh, then in the old days, we always used to have a pair of shoes for first, uh, a jacket or something for second, and a gym bag for third in the age category. So I think most of the the, the famous 20-year-old shoes that had been running in the last few years were ones that he he won at the series races um, that he so dominated as a 60-year-old 60, 60 in the 90s. Uh, so that was really the first uh, uh, meeting with Ed. I noticed in a, in a recent uh, video that was done of him uh, at his home, uh, he actually had uh, one of the trophies from the Coors Light uh, Toronto Half Marathon, as it was then, the grand finale, uh, was, was a beer can. Uh, mounted on a on a pedestal with a runner on the top of the beer can. I think he got that in '93. Uh, so so that was the beginning. But things really took off um, in 2003 uh, when Ed became the first septuagenarian on the planet uh, to go under three hours. Uh, he ran two fifty ten. He just squeaked in time across the line. Uh, he had a fall, uh, uh, um, uh, slipped and fell the previous week, um, and he actually, his face was all cut up, mm. uh, and he really looked. He was leaning strongly to, to his left as he came in. Uh, he, typical Ed, he, he just loved to race. He left it all out there. He got that 259.10. And Runner's World US, um, uh, the same day, uh, Paul Turgat had a new uh, men's world record in Berlin, and Andres Espinosa ran a new Masters 40 plus world record, sub 210 in Berlin. And the December issue of the Runner's World magazine. Uh, you know, the largest magazine for runners on the planet, mm-hmm. uh, trumpeted a day for the ages, uh, mm. new world records in Berlin and Toronto. Um, and Ed gave us his rallying cry of don't limit yourself. Uh, and after that, uh, the game was on for a partnership. Uh, and the next year, uh, Ed came back uh, and in the impressors in 2003, he just, you know, blew the doors off beyond any credulity. Uh, in 2004, 
when he ran 254.49. And if you age grade it, people tell me now, uh, Ed was a great engineer and statistician, Hmm. uh, not so much me, uh, but I believe the age graded tables uh, uh, convert that 254.49 at age 73 to 202.54, which is three seconds faster than the current open world record. Mm -hmm. Um, Ed uh, often said that was his finest race. And our little race that was, you know, 600 runners in the Scotia Toronto Waterfront Marathon two years earlier, well, in a couple of years, it was over 2,000. And uh, we... We went from there. Uh, um, it was that rallying cry of Ed's that don't limit yourself. That I think open horizons to us and our little Canadian marathon. Well, we could go on and see uh, John Kalai run a sub 210 in 2007, the 2930, uh, uh, the fastest marathon in Canada since Chapinski's uh, 2955 in, in the 76th Montreal Olympics. A 31-year-old record. People said it would never be broken. No one had run a sub-210 uh, in Canada. Uh, but again, it was Ed challenging us, I think. And uh, uh, he continued to amaze us. Uh, he ran those two sub-three hours uh, in his 70s uh, at Toronto Waterfront and he also ran a sub 3 in, in 2005 the spring of 2005 at the Rotterdam Marathon he ran 258.10 there and they're still the only three sub 3 hours by people over 70 hmm. um, I, I, I went with Ed to Rotterdam so I had the, the privilege of being with Ed uh, for all three of those those sub threes, uh, uh, and I think it says a lot about Ed. Uh, so many great stories, but I think this is a is a good one. We got to Rotterdam, and uh, we we knew people there. I knew people at the Rotterdam Marathon, and there was a Dutch seventy year old runner, Jup Ruter. Uh, and so we set up a challenge. And again, you know, Ed loved to race. He loved the challenges, the competition, the, the records. Uh, and so uh, Ed was accepted into the elite athlete program. And there we were uh, in race week in with all these, you know, 205, 206 Kenyan guys. And they just couldn't believe, you know, the life expectancy in East Africa they couldn't believe that here was their granddad <laughs> planning very calmly, as Ed would be, uh, very calmly and modestly, oh, to run under three hours on Sunday. And then, boom, um, 258.10, the mayor of Rotterdam was there. Yup, trailed in in 307. Uh, and uh, the story doesn't quite end there, though, because it's, again, a, a great Ed story, I think. Hmm. After the race, we went to the elite athlete holding area where people had cots and, and so on. Uh, and finally, we were led out of there in a group um, to go to another building for the formal awards ceremony. And uh, we got halfway uh, to the new building, and I suddenly realized I'd left my backpack in the athlete lounge. And I said, you go ahead, Ed. I'll run back and get my backpack. So I sprinted back towards the room, round the corner, and little did I know, but after we all left, they closed these plate glass doors to the room. So, of course, I ran straight through the plate glass, (laughs) uh, cut an artery over my left eye, blood (laughs) everywhere. Uh, They dragged me through the the plate glass, uh, you know, got the paramedics, uh, uh, bandaged it up. Uh, uh, and, of course, Ed, being Ed, the ultimate friend and gentleman, didn't 
carry on for the awards ceremony. He came back uh, to look after me and um, to go with me to the university hospital. Hmm. Uh, and there we got into the emergency room and they started to take the temporary bandages off my, my, you know, my, my forehead. Mm-hmm. And with the artery, the blood started spurting again. And all of a sudden, all these nurses and doctors were coming into the room and saying, Oh, Mr. Whitlock, congratulations, Mr. <laughs> Whitlock. Wonderful race, brilliant race. <laughs> uh, and they said, Don't let me bleed out here, man. Uh, so, so that's the thing. It's obviously an incredibly sad, sad time. We have lost a legend, uh, an icon for our sport, uh, a great friend. Um, Malcolm Gladwell said he was one of the top ten runners of all time. But there are so many great Ed stories that I think, you know, when I reflect back on them, like that Rotterdam one, hmm. it, it brings a smile. Hmm. And I hope that, you know, that's, that's the way we'll remember Ed. Hi everyone, Adam Stacy here, founder of Tracky. The interview that really stood out for me in 2017 was episode 57, The Complete Evan Dunphy. I think this may have been the longest interview ever done on the Terminal Mile, but I found the entire thing very interesting. Listening to Evan's story from the 2016 Olympic Games where he went from 4th to 3rd and back to 4th after that controversial bump near the end of the 50km race walk, Evan showed true sportsmanship and it was a very inspiring story to listen to. While we can't quite fit the entire interview into this episode, as per Mr. Tracky's request, here's a bit of that Evan Dunphy interview. The 50K was such a, a high drama race, um, really action-packed, uh, which might sound funny to some of our non-racewalk fans here, uh, but it truly was. To set that really up, though, you're on the starting line. What are the expectations, and you know what are your overall thoughts? So as I said, I'd come in sort of really determined to stick to a process. Uh, so the outcome, I wasn't too worried about it. I kind of told myself, look, I could collapse by the side of the road at 49 and a half K. But as long as I had followed the process that I had set out for myself, I was going to be happy. And so that process looked like putting myself in the lead group and staying there for as long as humanly possible. Um, so staying on the start line, I kind of, I well, the day before the race, I put out a little um, cheat sheet to people that had, you know, I had a lot of friends and family back home that were planning to watch race walk for possibly the first time ever. And so I put a little cheat sheet to sort of explain the rules and what to look for and how the race should unfold. And um, I said that there would be a group of about 10 athletes. There'd probably be one guy that goes off the front of the field early on. Then you'd have a small group of about 10 guys that would uh, stick together throughout most of the race, walking around 22-minute 5Ks. And that group would slowly dwindle down every sort of 5K after the halfway point. Um, if you go back and look at the race and the splits, I called that race absolutely perfectly. You had, you know, you had Johan Deniz go off the front of the field. He built up a giant lead. You had a group of 10 of us that stuck together, walking 22 O's for our 5Ks. Um, from the second half of the race, you just had that group. That group went from 10 to 9 to 8. Um, we caught Johan, and then at 35K, the race kind of started. Um, so my goal coming into the race had just been stay in that group for as long as possible, try to be one of the last guys to drop off and just see what happens. Um, so staying on the start line, that was, that was what was going through my head, just stick with these guys. I want to talk a little more about uh, Denise. You said he went off really quick, and uh, he ended up paying for that big time, for sure, in the, in the race. What really struck me was... Uh, that you were there to to give him, you know, encouraging words and, and to pace him back into things. That's not really camaraderie that you see in a lot of different sports. Is that strictly a race walk thing, or or explain that to me? Yeah, it's it's funny. It, there's a couple of different sides to the story. Um, I think the best it can be very um, succinctly wrapped up in in Mate Toth, the the eventual gold medalist after the race. He was asked about Johan, and he said something along the lines of, you know, at the, at the beginning when, when Johan went off the front, we kind of thought, well, he's the world record holder. If he can hold that pace, none of us can beat him anyways, but there's a 50% chance he's going to fall down at some point. 
and he's very well known for this kind of tactic. Um, I've raced him three or four times now, and I think every single time he's ended up on the ground at some point in the race. So he's he's very dramatic, um, to say the least. And so when we saw him standing on the side of the course um, at 26K or something like that, I don't think anyone was too surprised. Um, however, at that point in the race, I had found myself off the front of that lead group uh, walking by myself. So when I saw Johan at the side of the road, I, I kind of saw this as an opportunity to have someone to walk with. Um, so when I came by and patted him on the back and said, hey, let's go, yes, it was, you know, it was a nice thing to do and it was a good sign of camaraderie. But on the flip side, it was also me saying, hey, help me, let's drop these guys behind us and work together. Um, so it's a lot more, it was a lot more selfish than it was <laughs> an, an initially perceived as, I'd say. Um, but, uh, you know, he held on to, to finish eighth in that race, which is pretty spectacular when you see everything he went through and, and the resolve he had to, to get to the finish line. It was pretty incredible. Um, but he definitely, yeah, I was definitely more looking for him to help me out than I was hoping that he would get back in and still end up beating me. Perhaps one of the biggest stories um, of the Olympics, perhaps from a Canadian perspective, um, happened in the last kilometer. I want you to, to really put me in your shoes here. Uh, what happened between you and that Japanese race walker? Do you even remember a lot of it? So going into the race, so, you know, I've caught Johan. I'm at the front of the race. He tries to come with me. He doesn't last very long. So at 28K, I find myself off the front of the field in the Olympic Games thinking, holy crap, what do I do now? Um, I, I was too far ahead of the group to sort of slink back and let them catch back up. I had kind of committed already. And uh, so I looked at my coach around 30K and I, I looked at, at Jerry and I kind of yelled across the sidelines to him. I said, this is either going to pay off majorly or I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and I said it with this giant smile on my face, which afterwards he was asking me like what was going through my head there. And it was just sort of, there was that nice sense of of uh, accomplishment in that I was I was still sticking to that plan. I was so committed to that plan of of putting myself in a position I'd never been in before. So I kept forged ahead. I kept trying to I kept I, you know I tried to win the race from 25k, which is always a terrible terrible tactic. And by 40k, the the group of three guys that were left in that lead group had caught me and and, and gone past me. Uh, so I 40k I find my, I find myself in fourth place. Fifth place is pretty far behind. I felt decent enough that I could hold the pace I was going. But I spent a couple K just feeling sorry for myself, just thinking, oh, you know, fourth place, that's that's pretty good. Like, you know, that's pretty amazing. Just get through this next 10K. Um, at about 44, 45K, I kind of had this moment of, hold on a second. You told yourself you're going to come here and fight at the front of the field for as long as possible, even if you didn't get to the finish line. So what are you doing sitting back here in fourth place, feeling sorry for yourself, put your head down and go catch those guys. And so I basically started my finishing kick 5k out hmm. and was about 15 seconds down on Hiroki uh, at the 45k mark. And by 49k, I, I was side by side and we were in a battle for third. That 4k in between there, the only thing that kept me going was telling my body, just go one more step, just go one more step, just go one more step. So I had this very internal focus. When Hiroki and I caught up to one another, uh, both of us were absolutely exhausted. We, I tried to go right past him. He tried to respond. For whatever reason, he switched from the outside to the inside and went to pass me, and we just got a little bit too close to each other. We got tangled up and the only thing I can really remember from this moment is my brain going from this very next step, next step, next step to the bump happening, my brain going, oh, hey, what's going on? Like becoming very, from that very internal leg focused drive to sort of a greater awareness and, and sort of a, my consciousness kind of like kicked back in. I was kind of like, oh, hey, what's happening? Mm-hmm. And as soon as I did that, um, my legs sort of took that as a cue to say like, oh, hey, we're done. We can shut off now. And 
it's really funny because when I go back and watch that video of us bumping and I last about 10 steps before my knees sort of buckle and people use that as a, oh, well, he's clearly faking it. Like, look how long after the, the bump that he actually like stumbled, like he just knew he was going to lose and, you know, he's, he's faking it. Um, so it's always really funny to see because I watch that video and I go, oh, yeah, I can totally see why people think that. Like, it totally looks like that. But then when I can remember back to that moment and how it actually felt, and it was just literally my legs going, hey, we're done. We can shut off now. And I, then my, my knees sort of buckle, and there's a little part where you can see me looking down at my legs, sort of shaking my arms at my legs. And it was literally me going, no, come on, legs. I need you. We got one more, K. <laughs> just give me four more, like four and a half more minutes. That's all I need you for. Um, you know, it's really funny how that whole incident maybe lasted five seconds, five to 10 seconds, yet every piece of it is, I can remember and, and, and replay in my head as if it was an hour-long spectacle. Um, but but uh, yeah, to make a long story short, so that that happened, Hiroki went on to, to finish third and I held on for fourth and um, was never really too upset. I thought I'd... I had achieved my process. I had, I had fought hard all the way to the end. Um, fourth place was better than I was supposed, expected to do. And, um, you know, I was, I was pretty overjoyed, um, even, even coming across the line. What I, I really remember from that race is, is after the bump, uh, you know, watching you and, and kind of yelling at the, at the TV because you looked in really bad shape. You, you know, your knees were, were bucking all over the place, and uh, it looked like you were on the, on the verge of collapse probably for the rest of that race. Uh, I have to think that was probably, it was probably a fairly defeating feeling uh, after that, uh, knowing that you weren't going to come in third. What really got you to that finish line? Because like I said, you looked, you looked pretty rough. I don't actually... There's parts of that last kilometer that I don't remember at all. And, and uh, you know, I think I, I, I thought I remembered it as like we had this bump. I, I became distraught and then like just, you know, basically did what I had to do to get to the finish line. Um, but when I go back, when I went back and looked at my splits on my watch, um, my last 2K um, was still quite quick. Like I didn't really slow down that much in that final kilometer despite that bump or not as much as I thought I would have. I thought I would have lost like 30 seconds or something like that. Um, so it's really interesting to, to watch that video and, and see how different I look and how exhausted I look when I actually see how I didn't slow down too much. Um, it sort of made an it gave me an interesting perspective on, on the difference between how I felt and what was actually happening. Um, but, uh, what was I saying? Um, I, I think you, you mentioned that the idea that, that feeling of, I'm not going to come third, um, which is something that never actually crossed my mind. It was, you know, it was in the, such a, a minor part in that whole, in that whole last couple kilometers where, um, really the driving force behind that finishing kick was to satisfy that desire to leave it all on the table, to, to get to the finish line with nothing left. And um, I think as evidenced by the video of me crossing the finish line, um, I, achieved, I achieved that. And I think whether that had been first, second, third, fourth, 20th, or last place, I think I was going to be pretty, pretty happy with my performance. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think that the the story really started to take shape afterwards. I mean, there was an appeal put out uh, by our people. Um, I believe it was approved initially, but turned down on appeal. You had the option to go for it, and uh, and you didn't. Talk to me a little bit about that. So I come across the finish line. I collapse to the ground. I stupidly tell them that I want to go through the meet, the mix zone. Um, they start to hobble me through the mix zone when I'm grabbed by our coaching staff and told there's no way you're going through the mix zone right now. Go to the medical tent and, and like rest for five minutes. Um, so as we were going to the medical tent, um, I was, I was told that there had been 
you know, been an incident. And at this point in time, I, I didn't remember what had happened. I, people had told me that there was an incident and I like vaguely remembered something happening, but I wasn't, I couldn't have, I couldn't have told you like what had happened. Um, so I just said like, look, I'm putting this in your guys' hands. I can't make decisions right now. You guys do what you think is best and I'll, I'll make my decisions when I can. And so part of the story that, that gets mixed up is that we actually never filed, Canada never filed an appeal. Hmm. Um, the the on course, the, the track referee made a judgment call of disqualifying um, Hiroki after, after reviewing the video without us ever putting in an official protest or appeal. Um, so that's why after the Japanese appeal was successful, we were able, we had the right to further appeal. Um, I don't think had we appealed and then they appealed, I don't think we would have had the right to appeal again, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but because the initial decision came from the track referee, uh, that gave us that ability to, to appeal. But uh, to take a step back, it, so I spent about four, uh, an hour or so in fourth place. Um, I got healthy in the medical tent. I went and did my, went and talked to the media a little bit, tried to be as coherent as possible. Um, and then I realized, oh crap, I should go see my friends and family that are still here. And so it was the moment I was walking across the, I was walking across the track to go see my friends and family and the scoreboard above the finish line switched from fourth to third. Mm -hmm. And um, like all of my family and friends like burst out cheering and celebrating. And I was with Anaki uh, Gomez at the time and, and I sort of looked at him and said, you know, this doesn't feel like I didn't feel anything. Mm -hmm. That joy and jubilation that should come with winning a medal, which is something I dreamed about since I was nine years old, um, wasn't there. And so that was really my first indication that's, that this wasn't sitting right with me. Um, nevertheless, I had to go over to friend and family and play the role of being super excited and, and, and trying to, you know, trying to be excited about it because still not really sure what, what's going on. Um, but they, it, the thing I felt the worst about is that, the, that we didn't do our on course, uh, flower ceremony mm -hmm. because we knew that the results were unofficial. And so for Matte and Jared, who went one, two, I felt awful for them that they didn't get to do this ceremony at the race course um, because of what had happened. And I, I remember that being one of the things that stuck with me the most at the time was like how bad that felt to be, you know, ruining that moment for them. Um, but uh, I went back to, I got back in a, in a, in a car, I went back to the village and it was on my way back to the village that we found out. So this is about three hours after the race mm -hmm. that we found out that the Japanese appeal had been successful and that I was back in the fourth. And then the frenzy of Canadian Olympic Committee lawyers and coaching staff all telling me how to file an appeal to CAS and what the next steps are. And um, basically just with Anaki's help was able to tell people that give me half an hour. This is my decision to make. Um, you know, nobody else is making this, this, this decision for me. And so I, was able, I got some food in me. I went and watched the replay of the video. I went and talked to my coach and, and, pretty much knew right off the bat that I didn't want to further appeal that, that it just didn't, it didn't feel right. I was happy being fourth again. It was, it, it just had that feeling like it was the right thing to do. And it was a really easy decision to make in the end. It's, it, I would say that, that, uh, what happened even after that was, has got to be pretty unnerving, uh, you know, for any athlete, uh, but especially a race walker who probably hasn't seen a ton of media response to, to what you do. I mean, uh, Cam Cole uh, edit, editorialized that no appeal needed. Evan Dunphy showed us the best of the Olympics. Uh, Ron McLean uh, ended, up, ended up talking to you uh, as well. You know, you were everywhere on the on the front cover of the of the Toronto Star uh, sports page, which I believe some some people attached to that organization said would probably never happen how did you deal with that sort of media outpouring yeah it was it was 
You know, the funniest moment for me came the evening of the race when uh, uh, Matt Gentes, our, our, one of our media guys uh, at Athletics Canada, sent me a message saying, people want, like, people want to hear from you. Like, you, you. Can you like, write us a little like, statement? And I kind of laughed. I went, what are you talking about? What people? <laughs> like, nobody. Because I didn't have, I barely had my phone with me. I wasn't really checking social media. I hadn't seen, I didn't even know that CBC had shown the race. Um, and so I, I just sort of laughed. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, nobody cares. And he's like, no, like, you need to go, like, you need to, you need to say something. It's like, okay, like, give me 15 minutes. And I went up to, went up to my, my apartment and sat down and wrote out that, that statement that I ended up writing out and got Ben Thorne, my other teammate, to proofread it and make sure it made sense. And we, uh, we sent it off to Matt and Matt replied back saying, okay, do you want, do you want us to post this on Athletics Canada's website or do you want to post it on your own website and we'll link to it? And I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just post it on your website. I found out a few months later that that had received over 100,000 hits hmm. and could have been very, very good <laughs> web traffic to send through my website. <laughs> so regretted that a little bit. Um, but that was really when I first learned that, pe- that people have been watching. Um, and then as the day, un- uh, that evening unfolded and I had people like our, sh- our chef de Michon, uh, Kurt Harnett, come up to me and, um, you know, someone of his amazing athletic uh, pedigree telling me how much his, my performance meant to him. Uh, and then to see the same thing from people like, I think the biggest thing was the next morning after my interview with Ron McLean, uh, Clara Hughes came up to me and we had this really long talk about the impact of, of sport and, and what something, what a moment like, like my moment has the power to do. And, you know, for someone like Clara, who is a role model in every sense of the word and, and someone that, um, you know, I'm so proud to call it a, a Canadian teammate of mine. Um, that that was life changing for me to see the um, the respect that I was getting from these other legends of Canadian sport that I never expected would even you know know my name. Um, that was that's been the coolest thing out of all of this. So my perspective on things, um, I would say that before all of this happened is that the race walkers didn't get a whole lot of respect in, in the track and field community as you know, on, on the whole, maybe, maybe I'm pushing that a little bit, but I don't think too, too much. However, after that, I think that I noticed, uh, in the people I've talked with and the things that I've read that things really changed as far as I go. Uh, goes and and there was a lot more respect for your sport and and what you guys were doing did you notice anything like that um you know where all of a sudden race walking was taken pretty seriously in canada absolutely i mean um i think that that 50k race did so much good for the sport um not only did you have it was a close race you had less than a minute separating the top four guys you had i'm confident in saying that nobody in the top four is a drug cheat um you, know, you didn't have that to deal with you didn't have you had a good clean race you had uh you had johan who who had a stomach ulcer explode inside of him midway through the race hmm. somehow hold on to, to finish that race um there's so much out of that positive out of that race um i it's having the finish line video of everyone coming across the finish line and just collapsing straight to the ground, you know, it gave people, it gave people a sense of, okay, this looks funny, but these guys are working their asses off. And that's all we've ever really wanted, you know, for people to understand the physiological requirements of the event. Yes, it looks funny. And we're never going to change the fact it looks funny. And, and, but for people now to be able to disassociate that and not see not associate looking funny with being easy um has been a huge change for us um i'd say before rio uh most olympics you'd see about 60 percent of comments after a race walk or during a race walk be negative um 
I'd say 60 to 70 percent of comments would be negative. I think in that 50k and, and after that 50k, I saw a complete reverse in that. About 70 to 80 percent of the comments I received being wholly negative, or sorry, wholly positive about the event, which was more than I could ever have dreamed of doing for the event um, in a in an entire career, let alone you know my first Olympics. Jeff Costin is our recurring in-house run pundit, breaking it down and giving us his view of the track scene. We ask about his favorite episode, and this is what he told us. My name is Jeff Costin from Toronto, Ontario. I'm a fan of the show, fan of all things Michael Rokas, of course. I think my favorite episode of the year was from September with Pete Watson and John LaFranco. Had guests with probably more profile than both of those guys, but it stands out as a really high-quality episode with insightful takes from both of them. I did my school at Queen's, but traveled to UVA for a meet, really admired at least the way I envisioned their culture and hearing him shed some more light on it and the work they're doing was awesome. Uh, that 14 mile tempo that became a Let's Run thread was truly eye-opening and John's another solid all-around guy, uh, not only a good coach with a very different approach, but one of the real builders of the sport in Canada, so it was great hearing about what he was doing with Athletics Canada, particularly in the build-up to the Canadian 5K Champs, which you guys discussed. So thanks for that, Michael, and thanks for Goodyear. All the best in 2018. From that episode, here's UVA coach Pete Watson. So the first question I think on everyone's mind is, uh, where's Brandon Lord? What what happened to him? <laughs> Brandon Lord... Uh, was too smart and destined to be too successful to, uh, to keep running. Um, you know, he, he moved up to Las Vegas to work for Caesars. Um, I think he had dreams of continuing to run, but uh, he's got a he's got a he's got a real world job. He's doing really well for himself, and um, yeah, that's what a master's degree at uh, University of Virginia gets you. It gets you a fast track to adulthood. Fair enough, fair enough. So all this week I've been, uh, you know, on the social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, there's been all sorts of photos and videos of teams going to their respective training camps and stuff. And I've seen some really nice pictures on your own account uh, as well, too. Uh, Does UVA, do they do the training camp thing, uh, like the, you know, going to exotic or, you know, remote places? No, we actually stay in Charlottesville. Uh, We got great places to run. I really like having the boys come back a couple days early and actually be in their own environment and get to get to bond rather than, you know, kind of forcing them in a cabin and everyone's out of their element. I think the new guys coming in and seeing what the older guys do every day, it, uh, it helps their transition a little bit better. And it, It's a long year of, of, the, of the guys being on the road, of the coaches being on the road. I think just, you know, staying home and getting to get in the routine right off the bat, it really helps everybody here. So we're just fortunate. we got great places to run and, you know, we, we don't have to go get out of town to for, for something because, you know, frankly, it's, it's pretty hard to find somewhere better to, to go than where we are. So you've got everyone together. Um, you know, what is typically the first workout that you guys run? Like, what is is there one that one go to that you go to every single year? You know, just get the all the we, all the rookies and seniors to run the same thing. You know, it's crazy. This year we we've actually been a little bit more patient. We haven't worked out yet. Uh, so we're going into our third week. Um, our schedule is a little uh, more relaxed this year early. Um, Panorama Farms, our big meet in September, is a little, a little bit more low-key, so we aren't going to really line up until Wisconsin. Um, so we've just been doing, you know, long run, midweek 14-mile run at like 525, 530 pace, um, and then some strides on Friday. But, yeah, we're just taking the first couple of weeks of just uh, doing some doing some volume and seeing where the boys are and, and taking taking our time uh what we will do though like our first workout back we'll we'll get up on the grass fields and nothing crazy fast but a long time on your feet where we'll run uh five or six by 10 minutes with two minutes jog so yeah you know you're, you're getting 14 miles or so of, of working and then warm up and cool down um those are the early season stuff so we'll go five or six by 10 minutes the next week we'll go like eight by eight minutes uh, something where basically we're going 57 to 62 minutes of, of interval. Oh, wow. Uh, you, you mentioned the 525 pace long runs. Uh, that almost seems kind of Canova-ish. And that's something that I've always wondered about, you know, with, with Robbie's training. It's always been out there and that sort of stuff. Like, who are the guys that you really, you know, pull stuff from as a coach? Well, I think a lot of it is 
Dieter Hogan, obviously. You know, I spent uh, what I spent four years with Dieter and uh, and the Kimbia Group uh, in Boulder and Kenya. Um, Funny you say Canova, I've actually <laughs> I've had some beers with Canova at Curio View in E10 Kenya, and um, brilliant, brilliant man. And, uh, but him and, and Dieter are very, very similar. Just, you know, just try and build these, build this volume up, and, and get really, really strong. And then, you know, with strides, we add some paces in to do something a little bit faster. But lots of just moderately long um, of grinding sessions is kind of what we've done and what we work on. Um, just lots of general fitness. I'm trying to keep the boys healthy, but getting a little bit stronger all the time. So, I mean, that that's what the cross country strategy is. Do you do you employ like similar strategies and stuff for indoor track and outdoor track, or do you you know switch it up for something a little a little faster? Yeah, it, it switches. We look at the year you know, in a big thing. Obviously, you know, cross country is really important to us, and we I, I don't know. I think we've been like between thirteenth and twenty second at the NCAA's every year in the last. Five, or five years or so. Um, but we haven't sold our soul for cross-country. Um, you know, for, for us, it's really important to have, have three solid seasons, cross-country, indoor and outdoor, and that uh, we're running really well outdoors at the end. And if you look at University of Virginia right now, it's, I think we're one of three schools, maybe four schools, who finished in the top five of the program of the year the last three years in a row, which basically takes cross-country, indoor and outdoor, finishes at a national meet and golf scores at lowest score. Hmm. Uh, so it's really important that we use cross country to prepare us to run fast on the track. Um, because ultimately if you're running fast at the end of outdoor track, then, you know, it helps for that summer and then into the next cross country season. Um, here at UVA, we're, we're in a little bit of a unique situation is I only have like three admission slots to get kids into school every year. So my team is pretty small. I got 14 or 15 guys. So I got to be a little more conservative and we've been really solid through four guys every fall. And, um, you know, we, we struggle a little bit with, with five, six, and seven. I think we got that problem solved finally. It's taken, you know, five years, going to six years to get it done. But um, for us to do what we want to do with the DMR and with milers um, and get the track result, we haven't really been able to sell our soul to just go cross-country quite yet. So we use cross-country. I, I guess that's something that I've also wondered about too. I mean, you look at some pro groups like uh, Schumacher's group, where they say that they they only really train to peak once a year. Uh, yet you and I would think that your job is is based upon getting kids to do really really good things in three different seasons. How do you prevent you know burnout and, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, I think you know, like I said I got fourteen guys. Um, my coaching is all relationship-based, so I'm always talking with the guys, meeting them on the corner and sitting and having coffees and, and just getting a feel emotionally where they are, physically where they are. Um, our young boys will never run all three seasons. It's just way too much of a transition for an 18- or 19-year-old boy to come in and, and train at that level. For, you know, if they're really good and they make cross, they usually redshirt indoors and then they get ready for outdoors. Uh, we did that with our little Australian guy last year and it worked out really well. Um, we pretty much do that. It's no really running anyone into the ground, I think, until, you know, your fourth or fifth year, and, we'll, and then we'll start racing you a little bit more. But uh, we're, we're pretty cautious. The, the big thing here is we don't travel a lot, we, but when we do go to meet, we, we go to really high-end meet to, to get a qualifying time, and then all that really matters is, you know, ACCs and the national meet for us. Um, the boys get one good shot indoors, one good shot outdoors to, to set a really nice PR, and then after that, it's about racing. Another thing that I saw on your Instagram account, and and feel free to feel free to plug any of your social media that that you'd like as well too, is that uh, is that one of your guys who actually I think might have the greatest running name in the world currently is uh, had that preseason ranking that that was really really good. Uh, maybe talk to me a little bit about Johnny Pace. <laughs> Johnny Pace is awesome. Johnny Pace was just a. Uh little walk-on kid from northern virginia got into virginia in his own super smart kid um he just did an internship in singapore um i think they took like seven kids in the whole u.s to, to go and work in, in this company there i don't even know what it is i think he'll end up in mergers and acquisitions and hedge funds um, he's a brilliant guy but he's he's also super serious in his running and you know he was a walk-on i think he was 920s maybe 932 miles so what's that like 850 maybe for 3k hmm. Uh, yeah, he ran eight 
217 for 3K as a, as a true freshman fourth indoor. Um, last year outdoor, and then we registered him outdoor. He was actually contributing really well for us in cross country last year, and uh, he got a stress fracture in his heel. Um, could have run outdoors, but we just kind of rested him up. And he's back. He's, he's healthy. He's older. He's more mature. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what, he's a, he's a great running name, but he's a kid who could end up being like the president or something like that. He's, uh, he's got it all going for him. Just a, a really nice person and uh, just really, really well-rounded. So when, you, when you're looking for guys to, to be on your team and stuff, you know, I got to wonder about that as well, too. Do you look at just raw running talent or do you, you know, look for guys who have, you know, a lot of smarts because they might be, you know, a little bit easier of a sell to to get money for? Like, what what are you looking for when, when you are recruiting people for your team? Yeah, well, number one is I want guys who want to be here. So most of the kids, you know, I'll make a phone call to, you know, the best kids in the country and talk to them and, you know, maybe I got to twist their arm a little bit more, but... It, the depth in the U.S. is just it's silly. Um, you know, between 9.08 and probably 9.15 for two miles, so that's about uh, what, 8.30 and 8.40 for a 3K. Mm. I'm, this is probably an exaggeration or so, but there might be 200 kids like that, maybe 300. Uh, yeah, it's pretty silly. So For me, I, I want those guys, like I'm talking to them and I'm answering their phone calls and but I want the guys who really want to be at UVA and then I kind of bring them in for visits or I go and watch them race and kind of look at what, how they're built and, um, you know, see their mentality. And, um, if, if they're willing to come to UVA for the two things is for the academics and for the running, and that's their focus and they aren't going to be knuckleheads. Um, and there's a spot for them if, if they can get into school, um, you know, it's really difficult to get into school here. So, all right, if you look at our roster, a lot of our roster is, um, is Virginia kids because it's a little bit easier for them to get into school, uh, you know, in states rather than out of state. But um, yeah, I'm just looking for I'm looking for guys who, who maybe haven't been in a, in a factory type program where you know year in year out you know those guys are running insanely fast. I'm looking for guys who maybe know how to win um, at that level just below the best kids, um, but then really really want to be at UVA. And, and I think that's the most important thing. Is, you really want to be somewhere you're going to be a lot more motivated to, to be successful and you're going to be happy rather than, you know, sometimes in the recruiting process, kids make their decision because, you know, their arms have been twisted and the coach is really aggressive and they go for the coach rather than for the school and, and what, what's, what's down the road. So before this interview, we were uh, we were talking about uh, Canadianity, I guess you would say, because uh, you, of course, are from, from London, Ontario, and... Uh, let's take this time to, to share out call the office to Tony Lima and that really weird structural beam in front of the stage. But also, as, <laughs> yeah. also I was looking at, at your Instagram account and you were talking about Canadian jujubes, uh, and how much you miss them and, and how they're tough to get, uh, you know, get your hands on. What's the difference between an American jube and a Canadian jube? I don't know. The American ones are just, they're a little tougher and they don't have the flavor. Um, yeah, there's just there's a world of difference. It's, my mom and dad just randomly called me last Sunday, I think, or maybe the Sunday before that, and they'd taken this random road trip from London to a bunch of baseball games and ended up in D.C., so they drove down to see us. Of course, every time my mom comes, she brings my wife and I a bunch of jujubes, and, uh, man, those things are gone in a second. So, <laughs> yeah, we uh, I think I had about two pounds of rubber in my stomach and couldn't have been happier. So, you know, the younger brother, uh, Robbie, he is now into the coaching world himself. Um, is, is he calling you up at this point? You know, is, does he give you calls every now and again saying, uh, hey, what do I do about this person? Or, you know, what do I do in this situation? No, I think Robbie's uh, in a good situation. He's a smart kid. He, he reads a lot. Um, I think the guys, the people he's working with are a little bit different than I guess I have. So, um, you know, Maybe I don't relate to the everyday runner quite as well as Robbie does. He's, he's really social. He's really into those scenes. Um, he's really, really into running at, on all levels, um, and he's having fun with it. I probably should talk to Robbie a little bit more. I used to live here with my wife and I all the time for training camps, and it was great. But um, he's busy, and, and I'm busy, and I'm just it's pretty cool watching him continue to do what he wants to do in the running world after his career is done. You know, I got to do it, and now he's doing it, and um, – yeah, I think he's he's found his niche, and I think he's going to be really successful doing it. 
I mean, that, that's one of the things where um, Rob always struck me as someone who, you know, did the things that, you know, Rob was kind of in, in Rob's world, right? And he would be a lot different <laughs> yeah. than uh, a lot of the other guys that, that you'd coach. And, you know, this is no disrespect at all. I, I love Robbie. Uh, but uh, he, he would be a lot different than some of the other guys that you'd coach. How do you, you know, come up with coaching plans for, say, 15 guys and none of those guys are alike? Well, you know, we, we basically, it is a system we have here. Um, it, it is a structured program. It's, um, it is a small group, but I identify what I'm looking for. You know, the mile 3K group is different than the 5K, 10K group. Um, only probably at about 10% of what they do. Everything is a, is a pretty strength-based program here. Um, then we'll kind of switch it up with talent. We'll switch it up with pace groups and we just look at, at what we've done, you know, the previous six months, the previous year with each individual, and then we adjust the mileage. Um, we'll adjust the paces, uh, and, and we just talk, and, and we kind of figure out what the goal is. Uh, we can look at, like, last cross season was a pretty solid cross-country season for us, and we had some older guys, and we lined up for indoors, and, and the guys came off cross really well, and we decided, hey, let's take a shot at running really fast. We modification. We had four years of big guys like Zach Harriet, um, you know, he was knocking out, you know, workouts with Robbie uh, four years ago when he first got here, and Zach was a 19-year-old and running 110 miles a week with Robbie and handling it. And then, you know, um, he, he was just a really strong kid, so we just decided, hey, let's just throw down some, some thousands and back up the mileage a little bit and see what happens. And, you know, he went out and ran 13.44 and made the NCAA indoors and then set the school record outdoors and ran 28. 40 something as well. Um, but all the guys that we had, our boys were tearing it up at 5K last year. I think the NCAA does this cool thing where for each event they take the top four athletes from each school and they do like a basically an average. And Colorado State, where Robbie went to school, um, was the fastest school at 5K indoors last year and we were number two, hmm. which is pretty crazy when you think about like Stanford or Colorado and, and the Michigans and, and those schools. Colorado State and Virginia were, were one and two. And that's just kind of seeing where the athletes are and seeing what's going to work in, in the next phase and maybe see some chances. Um, I've been doing this for 13 years with these guys. I'm still learning, and we're still making adjustments, and we're still trying to figure out some things. But, again, it's just communication and how it works for everybody. And maybe we're a little more patient with some guys. Maybe we're a little bit more aggressive. Um, but we, we make sure no one's ever alienated in, in their own situation where, um, you know, they're being sacrificed for, for somebody else's benefit. Some interviews stick out to me because of the circumstances and context that surround them. Having had the honor of calling track races live in London for the past few years at the London Distance Series, I've watched as some athletes have honed the art of racing, gotten challenged, and ultimately gotten faster. One of those guys is Jeff Tweedle, a person who has clawed and scratched his way into relevance under the watch of Coach Paul Schnur. And there's no doubt in my mind, there's more to come from him. When I caught up with him, it was at Nationals this past July. Going in, he had barely missed the qualifying standard by less than a second, so he had to run an extra round. I'll let him tell you the rest of the tale. Right now we're joined by Jeff Tweedle just after that 1,500-meter uh, qualifier. That was a real thriller. Uh, you ended up coming in fifth in yours and uh, against a really, really high-caliber field. The big story, though, I think, is that you came through the qualifiers. Like, you didn't have that time to get automatically into the semis. Uh, you know, tell me what you were thinking going into the, into the qualifiers. You know, did you foresee yourself going into the finals today? Yeah, I think the qualifiers, I was only .06 off the standard, so right. that stung a little when I first realized it, but going in, I felt really confident. Training had been going well, and I, I really feel like I was coming around with my last 15 at AOs, so I was confident. I knew if qualifiers was anything, it was a good chance to get me go out, spin my wheels, work on some tactics. I haven't raced championships too much, so it was nice to kind of see how a sit and kick really felt and just test it out there. And I felt really good coming through. Like the last 300, I, I was strong, I felt good. I didn't feel like I was pressing, but I was moving well. So coming in the semis, I just, knew from talking to my coach and some of my teammates that it was just leave it all out there. You can't really leave anything to chance in semis. You never know what's going to happen. Everyone here is really good. Everyone's ready to run and it's, it's that time of year. So 
Uh, Paul and I just talked about staying in it, responding to every move, every move, not doing anything crazy at 800 or making a bid too early. And then on that last lap, just be strong and be ready to go and give it all you got coming down that home stretch. And I think it, it, it panned out. I was a little nervous watching the second heat being in the first heat. <laughs> So I was really time watching. I didn't. I didn't say anything. I think when that first heat was or second heat, sorry, I was going off. But it was good. That was my goal this year to make final. I wasn't able to make the final in the eight last year, so it was just about making final. Well, that, that's something I want to mention. I mean, like that's where your background is in like true, true mid distance, kind of you know in the eight hundred and the in the indoor thousand. Uh, but this year we also saw you do really, really well uh, at the U Sport cross country as well too. Uh, tell me, has anything changed? I mean, like, have you started adding in more aerobic stuff? Because that kind of, that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, I think the last couple of years, uh, Paul and my coach and I have taken a really strength and aerobic approach to just about everything. Even my 15 training is a lot of 3K stuff, a lot mm. of 15 specific stuff for some 5K work. Yeah. I've only done one real, like, what I would call an 800 meter workout this year. So right. it's all just about really working on that strength piece, strength piece cuz i know i i got the i still have the speed and we touch it every now and then just to keep it sharp in there but mm -hmm. yeah that's that's definitely been a huge part and yeah the uh, having a great cross season with like a real build and a real focus on doing well in the the 8s and the 10k's has definitely helped transfer throughout into indoors and now outdoor track you mentioned Paula Paula that's of course Paula Schner she's uh, an Olympian 1500 meter runner um, you know that seems to be kind of your bread and butter now I mean like how helpful has it been to have someone with you know that much success behind them help you out in that exact same event it, it's been great Paula I, I really think she's a great coach and what I always say is Paula brings something that some coaches might not have and that's experience she's she's competed at the highest level and it's nice to have a coach that you know has been where you want to be. Mm -hmm. So to kind of help them guide you along and get some insight into their head and just just kind of understand what it's like to, to be in those shoes helps yeah. kind of prepare you a little more, I find, when I get there. Now, in terms of 15s, I, Paul has a little bias, I'd say, towards 15s. <laughs> I've always liked the 800, but this year she really wanted to give the 15 a good shot, and I'm glad we did. It's it's been fun. I think I've always found 15s hard, harder to run because yeah. there's a lot more tactics in a 15 <laughs> than an 80. You just kind of go out, yeah. run hard, and then bring it home as hard as you can again. So the, the 15 is definitely something that's been a work in progress, and it's great having Paula there to kind of coach me through those, those tactics and that mm -hmm. headspace uh, through these for races like this, like big championship races. In case you've forgotten, Jeff ended up running a very respectable six in the final against some very heavy hitters. Not so shabby. That wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. Thanks for listening all throughout 2017 and have a great, great holiday season. Big thanks to Tracky for their ongoing support. And if you want to find us online, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and of course, tracky.ca. Thanks again to you for listening. This has been the Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. Well, it's snowing out there on our roadways and paths. So if you're not careful, you'll land on your ass But this frozen wasteland is where we must train Cause this spore waits on no one, that much is plain So let us raise up a toast to all those winter runners Grinding and sliding and fighting the cold This cruel winter, it won't last forever And soon it will be racing season again Training in Florida, well that must be nice It would sure beat the hell out of this snow and this ice Cause I can't feel my limbs in this cold arctic shock yeah, maybe Rob Watson was right about that sock. So let us raise up a toast to all those winter runners Grinding and sliding and fighting the cold Cause this cruel winter it won't last forever And soon it will be racing season again
So let us raise up a toast All those winter runners Grinding and sliding And fighting the cold Cause this cruel winter It won't last forever And soon it will be Racing season again Well it's snowing out there On our roadways and paths so if you're not careful, you'll land on your ass.